it's time to watch a movie you never seen there might be some ninjas or a crazy death machine there'll be smiles and there'll be tears you won't watch another movie for about 600 years it's time for death by video Between 1978 and 1980, the student film Edge City was filmed. Directed in California by British expatriate Alex Cox, the film featured an actor by the name of Ed Pansulo. Ed Pansulo told Cox stories of his friend Mark Lewis. Lewis had a peculiar job, and when acting gigs, gigs ran dry for Ed, he would occasionally go out with Mark to earn some money. Ed Pansulo told Alex Cox that while out doing this job, things could get real weird. Cox asked Pansulo what exactly was it that Mark Lewis did for a job. Pansulo responded that Mark Lewis was a Repo Man. And that is the title of the movie we're watching tonight. It's Repo Man on episode 100 of Death by Video! Woo! I'm Kit. And I'm Graham saying welcome back to another episode of Merry Movie Mayhem. We are do, doing uh, one of my favorite films, one of Phil, Phil's favorite films. It's a Death by Video approved classic. Yeah. And it will soon be one of Kit's favorite films because I think you only saw it once before at well, my I've, apartment. I've, uh, yeah, I saw it before at your apartment, but at one of your like movie nights where like, I don't know if I got the full, um, you know, people are talking and stuff and, and drinks are being had. And of course, you've got your famous disco lemonade on offer. Yeah. Um, so... I, I remember the movie, but I don't remember, like, I, I don't think it caught me, so maybe it'll catch me this time. Okay, so we're going to do it. So, um, where to start with Repo Man? Basically, after hearing the stories of what happened when Mark was out repossessing cars, Alex Cox was like, this is interesting, and he actually spent three months working as a Repo Man with Mark Lewis. These sessions involved stopping at liquor stores to get premixed cocktails called clubs and tracking down cars with payments way past due. Uh, Mark Lewis swore... That in every repossessed car he could, he found, there was a pine tree shaped air freshener, which we all remember from the eighties and nineties. Uh, Alex Cox doubted this, but upon repossessing his first car, he found it to be true. There was a pine tree scented uh, air freshener hanging from the the rearview mirror. Those were really ubiquitous, though. I mean, I'm sure yeah. the car I grew up um, riding in <laughs> <laughs> uh, also had such uh, air fresheners. Yeah, I definitely have, like, Proustian memories of, like, the, that air freshener smell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, the other 
interesting thing is that Cox learned that repo men actually drove anonymous cars and dressed like detectives because they had to be invisible. Um, and Mark Lewis theorized that being a repo man was the only job where you got paid for creating tense situations as opposed to avoiding them. Uh, there wasn't a repo man who didn't take speed, according to Lewis. Therefore, the life of a repo man was always intense. Um, I don't know if I want to get into like the 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 behind the scenes of this film because there's so much, and I didn't even get all my notes done that I wanted to get done. Um, or should we just talk about something that we've seen recently before uh, before we get into Repo Man? Sure, yeah. Kit has left the room. <laughs> oh no, he's going to get get in the phone. Get in the phone. Um, I'm going to start this one off because I just came out of. Uh, I had a short film that was in the Blood in the Snow uh, 2021 Film Festival. Uh, I think it's the best film festival I've ever been to. The events were great. It was very filmmaker friendly. Uh, lots of great stuff, but also lots of great films. And the last two feature films I've played, one on Tuesday of this week, one on, or of last week, one on Wednesday of last week, or Tuesday, Monday of last week, uh, they were Woodland Gray and The Family. Now, uh, I'll talk about The Family because it's the most recent one that I've seen. So The Family, directed by Dan Slater, who I had the pleasure of uh, being on a roundtable with, uh, it's awesome. It stars uh, Nigel Bennett, who uh, Canadian... And some American listeners will probably remember from the 1990s vampire cop show um, Forever Night, uh, in which he played Lacroix, an old vampire who also like read the opening narration of every single episode. He's a British man who settled in um, in Canada, I think in the 70s or 80s or maybe even 90s. Um, he does a lot of stuff at Stratford. He's very theatrical. I actually had the chance to work with him this summer on a on a Christmas movie. <laughs> had to edit myself there um <laughs> and uh and uh he was cool although he didn't remember his lines at all because it was clear he didn't care about it um but this movie the family he was fantastic in i highly recommend it uh it is folk horror but there's nothing super i don't want to ruin it and say there's nothing supernatural about it but there's nothing supernatural about it it's just the terror of being in a fundamental religious family that could be a cult that isn't actually a Christian family. There's all these, like, they talk about different gods. Like, I think it's e- Ebon or Eton and some other god. And uh, but it's just fantastic. Really, really good. Um, and then the other film is Woodland Gray, directed by Adam Reeder, another director that I got, chan- got a chance to talk to. He also gave me some hot sauce because a hot sauce company sponsors this film. It's also folk horror um, about a man uh, living as a hermit in the woods in a beat-up camper who... Um, discovers somebody who fell and hit their head on a rock. And it is good and scary and heartwarming and, and sad. Uh, so yeah, I just recommend both those films. They're both Canadian films. They're both independent films. And they both don't have distribution. They might have it by now because those films are great. I could see Black Fawn Distribution or Raven Banner picking up either of those in Canada. And then in the States, the world's your oyster. Um, how, how is the hot sauce? Hot sauce is good. I had it on my eggs this morning. Oh, nice. Yeah, some solid hot sauce. Uh, but I won't say their name because we don't do advertising on this show except for unsung horrors in the states you do free advertising i just can't remember the name of the hot sauce (laughs) the truth comes out yeah (laughs) by the way (laughs) you thought it was for principles no (laughs) no by the way uh big thanks to unsung horrors erica and lance that run that show uh they have still kept playing our ad at the end of every episode they might have forgotten that it's at the end of their timeline maybe that's why it's always there um but uh really appreciate it very sweet of them Yeah, yeah i proudly wear an unsung horrors pin on my coat um, Kit, Phil, uh, either of you guys, uh, what have you seen? Uh, not, not everything, but like, what have you seen since the last No, no, recording? of course not everything. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, probably the first key one since we last recorded that I watched. The first is uh, watch the Velvet Underground documentary by Tom nice. Haynes, which was fantastic. It's just like the perfect. This is how you make a music documentary. I mean, there's the challenge of like there not being much in the way of like audio visual Velvet Underground footage, but you know, like it also it's also kind of like a cultural history of like the Warhol scene of the Velvet Underground. And like Todd Haynes's rule for making this movie was he would only interview people who were there. So nice, no, I like that. No no historians, no No historians. No people like us talking about like yeah. we knew what was going on in nineteen sixty eight, yeah. Yeah, so you know, you're not having like Thurston Moore going on about how important Velvet Underground is. That's and, fantastic. Yeah. Like like they he, there's a kind of a loophole because Jonathan Richmond is in but Jonathan Richmond saw Velvet there. Underground. He was there. He saw Velvet Underground allegedly sixty something times. Mm-hmm. John Kale produced the first Modern Lovers record, and which is a fantastic record. Fantastic record, and like he he was like backstage with the Velvet Underground mm-hmm. as well. So he was yeah. he was, he was there. there. So he meets he meets the criteria of both fan and person who was there. Mm-hmm. Um. I rewatched uh, the Lizzie Borden movie Working Girls, which nice. is uh, terrific. That's I think that's a permanent part of the Criterion collection. You can watch it on the channel, and there's like the DVD. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, I wa- finally got around to watching uh, the first adaptation, uh, the 1947 adaptation of Nightmare Alley. It's a great book, and uh, the movie is terrific. They changed the ending because you know it's the Code Era, so yeah. It's, the book has a bleak ending, spoiler or not, alert. Mm-hmm. But it's still very faithful to the book. Like it's probably like among the best looking noirs and best acted. It's part of the Fox Noir series on the Criterion Channel. Oh yeah. So uh, that's probably one of the best noirs you can uh, come across. Um, rewatched Mulholland Drive. I don't think we. Uh, it's been a while since I watched it. It's been a number of years. I think the last time I watched it, it was at the Bloor right before it became shut down to become a Hot Docs. I think you mean the Ted Rogers Hot Docs yes. documentary uh. auditorium. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Me and you, we saw The French Dispatch, which uh, yes. we both loved. Mm-hmm. Um, it exceeded my expectations because Wes Anderson's last few movies have kind of disappointed me. Mm-hmm. And I heard mixed things because like, there's, there's there's a brand new Wes Anderson backlash happening where people like even the people who used to like Wes Anderson are like okay I'm officially burned out on Wes Anderson the, the Wes Anderson whimsy it's, why because he makes a new film every five years every half yeah. a decade yeah I, I don't get it it's like it's among his most creative and most visually stylish movies I think it's also his most explicitly influenced by the French new wave oh totally um mm-hmm um, I saw um, at the light box The Power of the Dog, which was Ooh, terrific. Yeah. I want to watch that one. Yeah. So it's like two of the best Westerns from the 21st century, directed by women Meeks Cutoff and Power of the Dog. That's true. I mean, maybe yeah. it's a different, maybe it's just the 21st century. Yeah, true, but you know. Where would you put Hell or High Water? Do, would you include? Because for me, that's one of the top I Westerns. I guess it's like the neo-Westerns. Yeah. I, I like Hell or High Water, but I don't love it. I, oh, okay. It is a movie I do like, mm-hmm. though. Yeah, I love that film. Is that everything then, Phil? Um, I also, another noir movie I watched and enjoyed was um, Laura with uh, Gene Tierney. Right. And Vincent Price. And uh, ah. 
Yes, Vincent yes. Pratt. Yes. <laughs> yeah, a very uncharacteristically Vincent, you know, mm-hmm. non-horror Vincent Price. Rather youthful Vincent Price. Ah, back yes. in his early days. Yes. When you see those early, like, photos of him from, like, the 30s, it's yeah. like, holy crap. Yeah. Homeboy was a smoke show. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, like, 1944. Uh, yeah. And lastly, uh, last night I watched uh, The Incident. This was part of Criterion's New York series. This was the film debut of Martin Sheen. Ooh. Yeah, it it has a stacked ensemble. So, like, Martin Sheen's, like, the co-thug that uh, terrorizes a large group of people on a New York subway car. Crazy. I kind of want to watch that So, yeah, among the people, it's leaving the Criterion channel on the 30th of November. Great. So, Tuesday. Yeah. It's... It's shot in black and white. Great looking movie. Mm-hmm. Just really anxiety inducing. Uh, oh, I bet. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, you got like Ed McMahon, Thelma Ritter, uh, Ruby D among the... Ed McMahon, like the Ed giving McMahon. away millions? Yes, like, yeah. the Ed McMahon. Sweepstakes against Ed McMahon. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, this is like from like 1967. Ah, right before yeah. the Tonight Show took off. Yeah. Cool. Alrighty, well, thank you, Phil. Kit, what have you seen since we last recorded? I think I, you've seen some Argento? Yes, I have. I've, well, I mean, we've recorded uh, ages ago. So. Yeah, sorry, guys. <laughs> there's, there's too many to go through. I'm just I'm looking at highlights, watch, highlights, but... Can we talk about Itchy the Killer? Oh, okay. Which yeah, is, will, which is what everything out of everything you've seen, I'm like, yes, that's a highlight. <laughs> and we haven't done any Takashi Miike on the pod, other than our um, first love, which... Uh, Kit, you and me saw it at TIFF. First Love, yeah, which was yeah. Our, one of our mini-sodes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, okay. Well, I, I mean, I had a shutter, um, a free trial, so I was trying to pack in a lot of the movies. I was also watching uh, the uh, Channel Zero um, program, which is not bad. Mm-hmm. It's not bad. It's a lot of Stephen King stories, basically, written by different people. Yeah. But it's fine. Got some cool imagery. Uh, but yeah, I did watch Itchy the Killer. Uh, which I hadn't seen, but that was like one of those, you know, notorious films mm-hmm. where it was uh, supposed to be very violent and, and mm-hmm. ugly. And of course it is. It yeah. delivers the goods. Yeah, it delivers the yeah, goods. Yeah, I use it. When I was in university, I used to, if there was a house party and we wanted to get everyone out of here, I'd just put it on. It would clear the room. <laughs> the ultimate plug filter. Yeah. Well, as I like, uh, as I uh, wrote in my stupid letterboxed review, uh, not that I should be going off of those, but uh, I mean, the title card is A Pool of Cum, which kind of indicates what you're kind of going to be in for, which is just really awful stuff i mean it's just filled with just uh, like there's obviously the uh um uh, the beating of the women is just gratuitous and uh hard to stomach but there's a lot of stuff like the guy was just like hey you think that i could pull off your arm if i tried really hard and the guy's like oh yeah you probably could you don't need to try and he's like i'm gonna try it and then he pulls his arm off it's a disgusting <laughs> movie yeah <laughs> i still one of my favorite times going to the light box i went by myself because there was a, a screening of the remastered itchy the killer in like 4k and I like went there and it was a packed auditorium. Uh, it was in cinema one at the light box. So it was this huge room full of people. And I'm like, I wonder how many people here have actually seen this movie before. I, I Turns do want a whole chunk hadn't. I did not realize because I watched silence about uh, back in August and I didn't yeah. realize that um, one of the one of the interpreters mm-hmm. and kind of like one of the chief villains. But he's like a really reasonable villain yeah. who was talking to Andrew Garfield and debating religion mm-hmm. and being like, listen, our, our religion wants good for everyone as well. Why don't you just join it? It's not a big deal. Yeah. You can just privately pray for your God. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was kind of a charming villain. But that's um, uh Tad, I'm gonna butcher this name. Tadanobu Asano, who plays um, Kakahara. Yes, Kakahara oh, wow. in the uh, in Itchy the Killer. Of course, without the scars and mm-hmm. stuff. And he'd be a lot cooler <laughs> if he did have the scars. 
Do we but, have like what, like a Glasgow smile? Is that? Uh, have you never seen Itchy the Killer? I, I, it's been years. Ooh, oh, episode one hundred and one, maybe. He's, well, he's we'll got see. he's got his uh, his face ripped open, and you can assume he does this himself because at one point he cuts out his own tongue, uh, and then is still is able to talk fine. Because well, he he, <laughs> he, he he has his his mouth cut on the sides of his mouth, so, so it's Glasgow open. Smile, but he has like. Um, piercings to hold oh, it yeah. shut while he's eating and then he can also smoke out through he can inhale through his like regular lips and then exhale out through the side of his face and he also uh, at one point inhales somebody's um hand yeah and and rips a good uh, chunk of the skin mm-hmm. off of it by opening his mouth fully yeah but just to finish my light box story it was great because beside me there was some douchebag explaining to his date like everything about japanese cinema it's like this uh, this director he's known for this and this and this but i'm like i don't think this guy's ever seen this movie before and this is a date movie this is gonna go fantastic oh, for God, me. No, you for, no, for me. So I was sitting there, and there was like, uh, when every horrible act of violence happened, there was some punk rock girl like three rows down, just laughing her head off. And the guy was telling me, was like, I, I swear I didn't know this movie was like this. How can people laugh at this? And I'm just sitting like, this is fantastic. Well, it, it's so over the top. And then I realized when I was uh, uh, looking into it that it is based off a of manga. Yeah. And you're like, oh, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Did you also notice though? Um, the interesting thing I picked up when I saw it in the theater was. The violence towards men is treated as, is treated as slapstick and comical, whereas the violence towards women is treated seriously. In in a sense, but then yeah. when like Itchy the Killer um, chops the woman's uh, top of her head off, and yeah, then yeah. her blood starts spurting everywhere, it, it is supposed to be I think comical at that time. And he's like just apologizing because the the funny thing about Itchy the Killer is he is just apologizing and crying the whole time, and then killing dozens mm-hmm. of people. Um, and wearing a crappy superhero costume. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm almost interested to read the manga. I've never been a manga guy, but... Either way, the whole reading left to, or right to left. <laughs> it just doesn't do it for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I did watch a couple of Argentos. I watched Inferno and Tenebre. Um, the, Shudder does not have Suspiria. It only has the remake of Suspiria, so I was not yeah. able to complete the trifecta because it seems like these well, are three films yes. that are related because definitely an Inferno. It, it yeah. refers Tenebrae, to Tenebre is so good. Tenebre is so good. Yeah. Suspiria, I've got the, uh, the, the, restored, the restored Blu-ray here. There's so. like, there's a scene in, uh, uh, is it Tenebre or Tenebre? I call it Tenebre. I've been told that's wrong. I heard it's supposed to be like it's also, Tenerebra or something. Yeah, because when you look it up, it's it's got an extra A in there that's yeah. not actually in the title strange but like yeah there's a there's a moment in it where this young woman is just chased and terrorized by a random dog and the scene goes on for like 10 minutes where she's just running away from this dog and it's got like nothing to do with the plot really yeah except that the dog eventually drives her into the killer's house and then also you've got like time for john saxon to show off his new hat and be pretty proud mm-hmm. of how his hat doesn't come off his head and yeah it's just a lovely film it's great <laughs> it's a lot of bloodshed though yeah it was argento's return to like so argento stopped doing uh giallos to do that's a straight giallo it's a straight giallo and so the interesting thing is a lot of people call suspiria a giallo but it's actually not it's it's a a horror film and that's what he he, same with inferno yeah that was the line that like argento laid in the sand was like i'm doing horror films now not not giallos and the interesting thing is that after because inferno was a very difficult uh, production uh, Argento was sick during it. Actually, Mario Bava actually came in to shoot some sequences because Argento just couldn't get out of bed. Um, and then Inferno went way over budget, cost a ton of money, and I, I believe financially was not a success. So he was like, all right, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do a giallo. But in the time where he had been doing Suspiria and Inferno, all these young Turks had come up and sort of like usurped, I don't want to say usurped him, but they basically like had like tried to draw a new line in the sand of like, this is where the giallos are. So he just was like, I have to go as hard and as above 
uh, all these guys as I can. And I think he did. Oh, yeah. Uh, d- definitely a triumph, I'd say, uh, that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I also watched, on your recommendation, on the last night of Shudder, I, I, I put on Basket Case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm, when I'm about like half an hour in, I'm like, ah, oh, Graham, of course you'd recommend this movie. <laughs> it's, it's so strange because it's like badly acted throughout like none of the actors are good mm. although in a way they are like especially the hotel manager yeah who's like not also not a good actor but just you know i don't know they're all such characters um but then the uh the actual brother the basket brother is probably the best acting job of the- Ooh, <laughs> he just Belial? screams yeah yeah who just screams mm-hmm. um and then it gets it goes to some dark places yeah i was not expecting to get very upsetting at times. Yeah, well, that's and that's the thing. Like Frank Hedenlauner, the writer director of the film, who uh, is a he is as much a great historian of grimy New York cinema as he is a uh, maker of it. Because he also made Frankenhooker and, and he made Brain Damage. And I think the last film he made was called Bad Biology, which I still haven't seen. But I've seen Basket Case. I've seen Frank Frankenhooker is one of my favorites. I've seen um, Brain Damage, which is also fantastic. Is there something I'm missing, Phil? He did the Basket Case sequels. Yeah, part two and part three, which is like, what was the third one on an island of all Basket Cases? Or I believe something? so, yeah. yeah. I've no, I haven't seen the sequels. Yeah. I, I, well, I mean, the first one ends with both of them dying, both brothers dying, so yeah. I guess they don't really die. No. Could kind of I also up. love how um, the the main character from Basket Case shows up in Brain Dead on the subway with yeah. the basket, and he's like, this guy's weird. Like, the, the main character from Basket Case like sits down and the character, main character from Brain Damage is like all, being all weird, and the guy from Basket Case is like, I gotta get out of here. This is too weird for me. That's a very diverse movie, too, uh, yeah. Basket Case. Well, it, I think it reflected New York. Yeah, it, it mm-hmm. totally reflects New York. Yeah. yeah, it really honestly seems like it's acted by people that you've never heard of. And non-actors, just, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. like they just collected people from around the area is what yeah. it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, Frank Henneloner also, I mean, he, uh, sorry, he most recently directed the documentary That's Sexploitation, which is about pre- pornographic films that uh that dealt with sexuality and basically just sold like sizzle as opposed to the steak um which i still want to see that documentary because it's interesting because i've already had it spoiled how it ends because they basically say like and then pornography was legalized the end like and the movie just stops because it's like they're not interested in anything beyond that because the sexploitation filmmakers really weren't pornographers they were businessmen and then when pornography came in it's so did the mob, and so did a whole bunch of Vice and a whole bunch of other stuff, and that kind of killed the sexploitation industry. Um, beyond that, just briefly, um, we watched Unforgiven, which I hadn't seen since I was uh, a young teen. I still like it. Yeah, I'd forgotten that Saul Rubinek is such a, a big big part of that movie. Good old Saul. Yeah, is Canadian, he a Canadian, Canadian yeah, veteran say. character actor, Saul Rubinek? Because I was going to say, like, Saul Rubinek shows up in so many... Man, I'm peeking all over the place on this on this episode. Sorry, I'm just, just checking here. Uh, the levels here. Um, yeah, Saul Rubinek, like, he's such a character where I'm just like, I love that that guy was an actor, because he would never be an actor now. Yeah. Yeah, like when he shows up in... Uh, what is it? Uh, True Romance. That's the movie I'm looking for, yeah. Yeah, as the director? As the, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Coming Home in a Body Bag Part 2, or whatever it's called. <laughs> he's the Joel Silver analog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, th- so that was fun. I-, I watched the first time I watched Colossal, which I liked. I like Colossal. Yeah, it was a good concept. Yeah, um, I Colossal as well. The logic, like you just have to suspend your b- belief, but it's mm-hmm. like after like the third monster attack, they would have evacuated Seoul. There's yeah. no way that it would yeah, be crowded. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I really like the Jason Sudeikis character because he plays the nice guy who turns out to be a douchebag. And I'm like, yes, do that. But also his plan would be foiled by the fact that 
No, I think they're gonna they're gonna empty Seoul. You won't be able to just kill a hundred people a day. <laughs> that yeah. that threat's going to get pretty empty pretty quickly. Oh, totally. Um, and and that I mean that's about it. I mean I guess we should mention. I did watch Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and it's mm-hmm. just wild to me that that's a rated R movie for one reason one only. I think that was I think that was John Hughes <laughs> legitimately just deciding, screw it, I want this to be an R-rated movie. I'm gonna like throw in all these f bombs. It's such a PG-rated yeah. movie for every other scene except this one scene, and I guess that's convenient for showing it on TV, mm-hmm. which I guess they would have been thinking about at the time because you yeah. could just cut that scene out and it makes no difference to the plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's just Steve Martin going off on this one. But it was also kind of a John Hughes trope, if you like, you like thinking of like the National Lampoon. Oh right, vacation, the vacation he goes on a dance like Robin Hood, especially in like the first uh, vacation movie. Yeah, where, where it's like it's PG, and then all of a sudden people start swearing. I out mean, of there nowhere. was nudity in Vacation, and there was some real dark humor in the first Vacation, but but yeah, but like that also just puts it over like his swearing meltdown at the family. Yeah, we're all gonna be whistling zippity doo dahs out of our buttholes. Yeah, but also yeah. like um, John Candy is just just a lovely lovely man yes um i should mention i did see uh, ghostbusters afterlife yeah you, you mentioned that there's another film that we all saw together i wanted to mention real quick dune oh we saw, we saw the denis villeneuve um which was sadly dune. not an update of the classic id video game doom which i thought we were all going to see <laughs> it's a lot slower um, and a lot less demon shooting i mean a long story short uh you did not like it uh no. phil liked it okay and then i i liked it more than you two and that's <laughs> it was a very bizarre thing where Phil rates something higher than I do on Letterboxd. I'm like, that's like I've told people that and they're like, what? Yeah. So. So, yeah. So it's uh, it was divisive. But Ghostbusters Afterlife, go see it. It's good. Uh, we'll see if I see it. That's fine. I got teary eyed at the end. It, it can happen. Yeah. I got teary eyed at the end of planes, trains and automobiles. Come on, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. There's has a couple of tearjerker moments, like when, you know, like John Candy, you know, uh, after like Steve Martin yells at him and, you know. John he gets K- so sad yeah, and he's like, I am who I am. I mean, yeah. you know, I don't. And it's just like his character is so awful yeah. that only John Candy can actually make it uh, palatable and make yeah. you like, come on, don't be so mean to the to the fat guy who yeah. is ruining your life and stealing <laughs> your credit cards and stuff <laughs> like that. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh Cool. Anyway, that's about it. All right, so with that, let's watch Repo Man, and we'll be right back. If you're looking for more horror outside of the mainstream, look no further than Unsung Horrors, a podcast about underseen horror movies. I'm Lance. And I'm Erica. Every other week, we'll cover a horror movie with fewer than 1,000 views on Letterboxd. We'll even give you double feature recommendations to pair with the movies we discuss. From gothic to shot on video, from slashers to comedies, from giallo to J-horror. We'll cover all the subgenres. So join us as we unearth these hidden gems of horror. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Unsung Horrors, available wherever you listen to podcasts. So how much do I get paid? 25 bucks a car? Paid? You don't get paid. You kidding? You work on commission, that's better than being paid. Most cars you rip are worth two or $300. $50,000 Porsche might make you five grand. Come on, dickhead. It helps if you dress like a detective, too. Detectives dress kind of square. People think this guy's a cop. You're gonna think you're packing something. They don't fuck with you so much. Are you? My what? Packing something. 
an asshole gets killed for a car. The guys that make it are the guys that get in their cars at any time. Get in at 3 a.m., get up at 4. That's why they ain't a repo man I know that don't take speed. Speed, huh? I never broke into a car, I never hotwired a car, kid. I never broke into a trunk. I shall not cause harm to any vehicle nor the personal contents thereof, nor through inaction let that vehicle or the personal contents thereof come to harm. It's what I call the repo code, kid. Don't forget it. Etch it in your brain. Not many people got a code to live by anymore. Hey, look, look at that. Look at those assholes over there. Ordinary fucking people. I hate them. Uh, me too. What do you know? See, an ordinary person spends his life avoiding tense situations. Repo man spends his life getting into tense situations. Let's go get a drink. Tense situations, kids. Get in five or six of them a day don't mean shit anymore. I mean, I've seen men stabbed. that mean shit to me. I've seen guns, guns, too. They don't mean shit. But that's when you got to watch yourself. Here, I'll handle it, pal. Try to settle down. <laughs> okay. Have a nice day. Night. Night, day, doesn't mean wasn't that Otto? Otto who? And that was Repo Man. I don't know why I almost went Irish there, and I know my, my tea almost. Oh, that was Repo Man there. The Repo don't Man. Don't you know? Tut tut tut. Faith Megora Batman. Um, all right, so that was Repo Man. Uh, where do we start? Well, initially, the plan to make this film was to make it completely independent from studios and to um, to shoot it for only $70,000. Um, Alex Cox and his producing partners, Jonathan Weeks and Peter McCarthy, uh, set out sent out over 200 copies of the script along with several pages of a comic book version of Repo Man to potential production companies, distributors, and investors. All of them came back negative except for one, and that one was Michael Nesmith, better known as Mike the Guitar Player from the 1960s television and rock and roll band The Monkees. He was the one with the toque, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, He's also the one with artistic integrity. Um, so, although it might have been weird to think that a 1960s teen idol was interested in an anti-corporate sci-fi uh, punk rock adventure film, Nesmith had had a constant source, been a constant source of frustration for the producers of the Monkees. He fought tooth and nail for the members of the Monkees to actually play their instruments while performing live, and he threatened to quit if the record label didn't put songs he wrote on their records. Didn't he also start MTV? I'll be getting to that. Oh, okay. There's also the movie Head, which, you know. Yeah. I like uh, that yeah, movie. Head film, yeah. Yeah. So after The Monkees ended, uh, Michael Nesmith was disillusioned with the music business. In the early 1970s, he founded the Pacific Arts Corporation to manage and develop media projects. He was an early innovator of home video, and he produced pop clips. This was a music video television program that aired weekly on Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon liked the program so much that they stole the idea and created MTV. Ah, yeah. So he was the first one to, to to actually be like, "Hey, we can actually do something with music videos." So he actually shot a lot of music videos with Pacific Arts Corporation to do it. So in 1981, Nesmith produced Elephant Parts, a collection of comedy skits and music videos, which was released in 1981 on VHS, Betamax, Laserdisc, and CED to tremendous success. Um, so Laserdisc, uh, everyone kind of thinks of it being a 90s thing. It had actually been around since the 70s. Uh, and CED is a little talked about home video format, which is basically a, a film on a record 
but you couldn't rewind it yourself unless you had a special rewinding machine. You actually had to take it back to the store to be rewinded. <laughs> the greatest scam of all. The success of Elephant Parts led to Pacific Arts Corporation's television and home video releases, which led to their first feature film, 1982's Time Rider. I still didn't read that right. I don't know why I can't speak tonight. Speaking is hard. Yeah. It was during Time Rider's production that Nesmith was given the script for Repo Man. Nesmith liked the script so much that he initially thought of financing the film himself, completely out of pocket, but then he decided to pitch it to Universal Pictures. Surprisingly, Universal agreed to make the film. The only catch was that they would take it on as what is called a negative pickup. Do either of you guys know what a negative pickup in the film industry means? No. I mean, I can guess, but I, no, I have no idea. Okay. Essentially, that means that they would buy the film once it had been completely funded, finished. That's what I would have guessed. Yeah. So Nesmith had to put up all the money up front, $1.5 million. That was in 1983 dollars. The equivalent cost now would be around Um. So... I don't know. How do we? D- I don't. I don't know if we should just tackle this in a pure plot way because this movie. It's, it's, it's it has a scattered. plot. Yes, it's scattered. It has a plot, but you know, it's also you know just describing scene by scene. It's kind of like mm-hmm. it, it's hard to capture the essence. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more of a vibe movie. Yeah. Uh, well, let's begin with Alex Cox. So he always saw it- handsome man. <laughs> Sure. Um, I love you, Alex Cox, if you're listening. I don't think you are. But uh, he, he knows he's handsome. Yeah. But he uh, and he's directed like some of my favorite films. Uh, Repo Man, Sid and Nancy, uh, Straight to Hell. Straight to Hell is such an underrated gem. Walker, uh, Highway Patrolman, which is probably my personal favorite of his of his oeuvre. I've never seen Highway Patrolman. I haven't seen that. It had a DVD release about... 10-ish years ago but i think it's out of print again so i I think maybe kino might have picked it up since then because kino released straight to hell yeah because there's there's a deep another deep cut of his that i kind of enjoyed um three businessmen oh yeah starring miguel sandoval yeah it also has uh bunny colvin from the wire he's uh one of the the eponymous three businessmen Mm -hmm. and was cy richardson was in that as well i believe so yes Mm mm-hmm like, I think he's in every Alex Cox movie, except for maybe Sid and Nancy. I don't think he was in Walker. I think he is. Is he? And he yeah. Well, he, uh, I'll, we'll get there. He wasn't in Highway Patrolman, though, I believe. Um, but, um, so he always sought to have an underground independent career, and he gradually worked his way down the Hollywood food chain in order to get it. Um, I highly recommend reading his book, X Films, about the first 10 films he directed in his career. Uh and his career actually can be broken up into several different periods. His somewhat mainstream period, which would be when he made Repo Man, when he made Sid and Nancy, when he made Straight to Hell, and even Walker to to an extent. Where all because I mean Walker starred Ed Harris. Um, straight. Yeah, to, Universal Pictures put it out. In, I mean, they buried it and it yeah. ended his career. But well, he's still been directing films for the past thirty years. Well, I mean, it ended his in career mainstream in the, career. In yeah, the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Straight to Hell was meant to be. And a big... he wouldn't compromise on the movie. And, oh, yeah. not at all. And, and like Siskel and Ebert both considered, I think, the worst movie of '87. Which is weird because I think that's yeah. one of those things. Like looking back on, it's not that bad. No, no. I think it's Alex Cox's personal favorite. I think that makes I sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, it got a Criterion release. Mm-hmm. I, it was the first uh, Alex Cox movie to get a Criterion release. Yeah, and then came Repo Man, and then I don't think there was another. Has there been another uh, Criterion? 
Let's send Nancy got a criterion. Right, right. Well, that was actually no, that was actually his first one because that right, was back in the one, laser disc right, days. Right, right, right. Yeah, the long out of print laser disc yes. of Sid and Nancy. So where do we go from here? So and then he went to Mexico um, for a few films. This is where he made Highway Patrolman, which I think is his best film from that period. Uh, and then he went back to England. That's where he made Three Businessmen and several other films. And now he's got this interesting... He was also the original director for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So he had written the initial draft with his wife. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that's a whole other story. And I, I guess that's a long, a long, long, long story. story. Really convoluted. He was initially up for also directing Perdita Durango, the um, Alex D'Iglesia film, um, which got made, which is supposed to be like a big, like, it's supposed to be, it was supposed to be the next Pulp Fiction and it became nothing, and I actually wish he had directed it because I I watched that film. I'd waited a long time for the for the original edit to be released in North America, and it was, and I didn't enjoy it at all. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, what else can be said here? Oh, and so he so now he's got this current thing, which is where he's making these ultra incredibly low budgeted films, which he initially described as micro features. So this is like Searchers 2.0, Repo Chick. Build a Galactic Hero, and he made another one recently, which we'll I'll also get to. Um, in addition to directing films, he also hosted the incredibly popular BBC film program Movie Drome from 1988 to 1994. During this time, he introduced audiences to 141 different films. Um, and in addition to his book X Films, he also wrote the fantastic book 10,000 Ways to Die about Spaghetti Westerns, which is where I, as in me, Graham, first heard about The Great Silence. And it's interesting because... Um, the actress who plays Marlene, Vanetta McGee, plays Marlene. She actually appeared in The Great Silence. And in this movie, she plays Marlene, who is the leader of the revolutionaries, uh, along with the Rodriguez brothers in the film. So he is also a huge fan of the Japanese Godzilla fan films and narrated a documentary about Godzilla, in addition to also writing several Godzilla comic books for Dark Horse Comics. Um, here's the rundown of every film Alex Cox directed. Edge City, Repo Man, Sid and Nancy, Straight to Hell, Walker... El Patrulliero, a.k.a. Highway Patrolman, which I highly recommend again, Death in the Compass, The Winner, Three Businessmen, Revenger's Tragedy, Searchers 2.0, Repo Chick, Bill the Galactic Hero, and Tombstone Rashomon. He currently is a, uh, a film instructor, I think, at the University of Colorado, uh, where he's been living for the past little while, and he basically makes feature films with his students. Are you going to say something, Kit? No, no, I wasn't. Yeah. So... Um, <laughs> So where do we start with Repo Man? I mean, I think the opening credit sequence is just dynamite. It just kicks in with that hard guitar riff, and we see the map of, uh, I think it starts on Los Alamos, California. That's also charting the path that the Chevy Malibu takes. Yes. Because in addition, so this film, uh, even though it's only faintly in there, this is actually probably the first film to ever discuss the the infamous Roswell, New Mexico alien crash of the late 1940s. Because Alex Cox was into all this. He came over from Britain, and he was into all this weird Americana and stuff. And he was like, wait, you mean there's this story of an alien UFO that crashed in Roswell, New Mexico, and not everyone knows about it. It's not been made into movies. So he just... This also is one of those things where, like, when they went into making this movie, they threw everything into it. He threw everything into it because he's like, who knows if I'll ever make another movie? So I'll put in everything. There'll be car chases. There'll be punk rock. It'll be repo men. It'll be sci sci-fi stuff there'll be criticism of religion and government and finance and all that stuff that's correct sorry kit you keep looking like you're gonna say something (laughs) so i stop talking and then you're like "Uh uh-huh good point all right cool (laughs) yeah and then we open up on uh a scene of which was actually interestingly shot by 
the sequence of a highway patrolman on a motorcycle pulling over Fox Harris. So he plays J. Frank Purnell, who is the uh, scientist who drives around in the Chevy Malibu with, it's either a time machine, a UFO, an atomic bomb, or a dead alien in the back, we're, in the we're, trunk. We're never quite sure. Yeah. Uh, although if you ask Alex Cox, he says it's it's all the above. It's, That's not yeah. fair. That's a cop-out answer. Come yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Fox Harris is an interesting actor. His acting career was actually fairly short compared to everyone else's in this film. His first film was 1982's Forbidden World, and his last one was 1990's Dark Romance Volume 2. So only eight years of, of, of acting in film. He also acted on stage quite a bit. Alex Cox met him when he went to go work at the, I think it's the Actors Studio in Los Angeles. And Fox Harris was the only actor there who was actually nice to him because, like, as, like, young film students, they were basically treated like crap in order to, so that all the actors can just, you know, you know, get lunch and coffee and stuff. Whereas Fox Harris was actually nice. They basically, that also happened with another actor in the film, too. It's in my notes from the, from the commentary, which we'll get to. But, like, Alex Cox pointed out on the audio commentary for this movie that, like, actors, it pays to be nice. Because if you're nice to young film students, they might just cast you in their movie. Um, so Fox Harris also, uh, he appeared in, uh, Hammett, Human Highway, the classic cult film. Uh, I think that's directed by, um, Canadian rocker Neil Young, right? Yes. Yeah. It's in the Neil Young Devo movie. Yeah. Yeah. So he's in Human Highway, my favorite year, Rock and Roll Hotel, which Dick Rude, who's also in Repo Man was in, Sid and Nancy, also directed by Cox, Straight to Hell, all, again, also directed by Cox, Evil Spawn, Walker, again, directed by Cox. The Underachievers, Deep Space, Warlords, Terminal Force, Mutant on the Bounty, the late 80s Dr. Caligari, wow. Terror Eyes, Nerds of a Feather, Alienator, and Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. Nerds of a Feather. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he, he crammed a lot into those eight years of uh, on-screen acting. So yeah, no, he had a weird, like, intense career for those, like, eight years that he was acting in film in the 1980s. Yeah, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, it's a weird thing, because I saw that movie, and then and I'm like, is that Fox Harris? Because I'm like, what, sitting up being like, oh, this movie sucks. It's a Fred Olin Ray film, and uh, I've never seen a Fred Olin Ray film that I thought was good, and I know I'm going to get some crap on the internet for that. But um, yeah, he was in Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, which also featured Linnea Quigley from Return of the Living Dead, a uh-huh. fantastic punk rock film. And uh, Gunnar Hansen, the original Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre was in it. And it was about an, uh, an ancient Egyptian chainsaw cult. Maybe we should watch that movie. The more I'm talking about it, the more I'm just like, man, there's some stuff in there. But yeah, so that's Fox Harris. He's pulled over by the highway patrolman. Well, he doesn't He doesn't drive well. And throughout no. the movie, he just kind of... Fun fact about Fox Harris. He just wanders. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a, a, a drunk Drift, person. Sort yeah. Of, yeah, just yeah, drifting yeah. through lanes. Fun fact about Fox Harris. He actually didn't know how to drive. This makes sense. It so, adds up. So most of the time when you see the Chevy Malibu driving, you know that his face is, is obscured, and it's actually Alex Cox himself driving the car. Uh, in fact, early on in production, the Teamsters on the film convinced Alex Cox because they only had one Chevy Malibu at the start, then they got a second one. Um, they basically said, like, hey, uh, since you're going to be here on set every day and we only have one of these cars to keep it safe, you should drive it to set every day. And so he did, and two days into the shooting of the movie, it got stolen. Nice. <laughs> no, they got it back, and they got a second one, uh, which they should have had from the get-go. Or was it repossessed? Oh, snap. Um, well, they did repossess it in order to get it back, yeah, so either way. Literally, yeah. 
they lost possession and then regained possession. So yeah, so the highway patrolman pulls them over, and what happens next? Oh, the um, uh, open day. Whatever happens, he uh, the highway patrolman opens the trunk. Uh, and then is uh, vaporized. Yes, nothing but his boots are left there, which is actually an homage to the previous one that Michael Nesmith produced, Time Rider, because the same thing happens, someone's boots get left behind. Also, I was thinking that probably Pulp Fiction draws from this with the mm-hmm. with the briefcase a little... Well, it's all from Kiss Me Deadly. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah. Have you ever seen uh, Kiss Me Deadly? I have not, obviously. We should watch that. I, th- I think I've got it here. You've seen Kiss Me Deadly, yes, right? Yes, I Phil? have. Spoiler were you, alert. Were you, were you with me when we went to go see that at the Royal? No, I was not there for that. Oh. I missed that one, huh? But I'm yeah. sad I missed that one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there is a nuclear device inside of a yes. inside of a. Uh, that was the spoiler. Oh right, inside of a briefcase. But anytime, yeah, anytime it opens up, it glows. Nice. Well, anyway, yeah. So that's so much for the uh, highway patrolman. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't know if we can uh, just go over the plot, but no. uh, then we just uh, switch to Emilio Estevez, who was yeah. stocking the shelves with. Um, what is it? The ye- yellow cling canned peaches? Yep. So this film uh, kind of introduced the whole concept of like blatant non-product placement by having everything in it just be generically labeled food. So It it's is like, funny because you can clearly see like Del Monte yeah. signs in the background. So I guess they, they couldn't, they were filming in a grocery yeah, store. Yeah, I don't think they wanted to redress the whole grocery store. But yeah. Uh-huh, exactly. So it's like, you know, there's even at one point where he's eating out of a can with just the word food written on the label. Food and sauce. Food and sauce. So, yeah. Which uh, his mom says, why don't you put it on a plate, son? You'll enjoy it more. And he says, couldn't enjoy it anymore, mom. Mm-mm, good. <laughs> I think that was Roger, one of Roger Ebert's favorite sight gags from uh, the Repo Man, or at least yeah. he thought of it as a sight gag. and. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, would say all the product is a sight gag, like just beer or uh, yeah. there's a p- point drink. where, yeah, Harry <laughs> and Dan is like, of- I need a drink. And then like smash cut to drink. Yeah, just a, a six, a, pack, a six of pack of cans with the word drink on them. Um, I mean, this film was kind of groundbreaking in that like it, it was the first real punk rock soundtrack compilation that was also widely available because it was put up by MCA because at this point MCA owned Universal. And MCA was supposed to put out "Damaged by Black Flag," and there was a big, there's a whole uh, that's, that's a whole other story right there. That's that's like a six part <laughs> podcast. <that> yeah, <laughs> it's when Black Flag went by. What was their name when they couldn't use their name? Black Flag. Everything went black. Yeah, yeah. For a brief period, Black Flag couldn't even perform because their deal with MCA was so bad. Whew, rough. But um, but yeah. So and the fun thing about this movie is that like when it was initially released. It was barely released because, like so many places, the regime in charge at Universal Pictures that greenlit the film as a negative pickup were gone, and there were a whole bunch of new people in who just did not care about Repo Man the movie or the soundtrack. So they kind of dumped it in one theater with like a bad um, poster where like the name Repo Man was actually hard to find on the poster. Alex Cox famously like said he hated the poster, and he he and his producers went around to all where all the posters were put up in L.A. and spray painted the word Repo Man like uh, in big letters on the poster just so people would know what was going on or what the movie was. Um, in New York, they had a bit of a better poster. The The poster in New York City was actually the two boots from the highway patrolman left smoking on the side of the highway. Um, but it was buried and it didn't do well. And then the funny thing was um, MCA in their, in their soundtrack division was like, what is this movie Repo Man? Its soundtrack is selling through the roof because at that point you couldn't get, you know, Black Flag or who else? Uh, Suicidal Tendencies, Fear. Mm-hmm. That you couldn't get the this music 
in a record store in Oklahoma or in mm. Iowa or yeah. Utah. But the, because it was an MCA soundtrack, it went everywhere and it sold incredibly well. So well that that then had some, like the MCA soundtrack where you shout to, to MCA Universal and said, what is this movie, Repo Man? We've never heard of it. It's never played in all these cities, yet the soundtrack is selling well. So because of the success of the soundtrack, they actually started putting it back into theaters. It never went into wide release in the theaters, but it did receive a much wider VHS release than they initially planned on, and that's where it actually found its its fan base was on VHS. I guess the poster is well known. It has had a really good tagline. Uh, it's 4 a.m. Do you know where your car is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a lot of weird taglines. Because like, what was the other one? It's not just a job, it's an adventure. But I guess that one was not did not circulate as much as... No, no, that was a much later one. What were you going to say, Kit? Oh, no, nothing. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Kit, this is your first time seeing Repo Man. What did you think of this it? Is not, this is not my not first, first time. I saw it, I saw it before. It's your, it's your first focused on time. Uh, yeah, focused on time. <laughs> yeah. Well, because... Uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, I enjoyed it. It's, uh, cool. it's a vibe. Um, mm-hmm. Just still kind of processing it. Um, so yeah, I don't. I don't really have articulate thoughts uh, about it. Just, it's one of those movies that'll grow on you. I, I, I assume that's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I can see that. But like, it's the kind of film where like you'll think about it and like just the overtime, just the because like I still laugh at this movie and I watched it yesterday. I'll say I, I kind of like while I was watching it was thinking like this is sort of almost like a like a punk rock Wes Anderson film because it's just meticulously like crafted. Little mm-hmm. scenes, yeah, and things and and um, but it's it's a bit absurdist. It's like like when uh, Emilio Estevez goes to see his parents and they're just like completely uh, zonked out watching some televangelist, watching a, a televangelist, yep. and the mom lights a joint. Yeah, um, but it's just things like that. It just seems very um, carefully crafted, but mm-hmm. punk rock. And I think that was supposed to like he was supposed to be standing for like Jerry Falwell the road, like wasn't that yeah yeah he shows up uh, towards the end too yeah. I, it, we're we're giving a scattered mm. uh, uh, plot detail but I don't, it doesn't really matter with this yeah. movie I mean break down the plot in like uh, a couple sentences if you can Graham do you think do you think that's possible Sure I think it's it's possible I'll I'll do my best um, basically Otto is a suburban punk uh, in and around Los Angeles who. Uh, but through happenstance, he gets becomes, fired at the beginning. Gets fired from his job. Is looking for a new it's job. It's hard to say. It's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. <laughs> he gets a gun pulled on him by the uh, security guard, and he flips him off. Um, so he finds himself in the uh, like uh, without unwittingly becoming a repo man when Harry Dean Stanton's character of Bud asks him to drive his old lady's car because she's about to give birth in a hospital, and I can't leave this car in a bad neighborhood. Turns out he was repossessing a car, and he needed a second driver. So Otto, after exhausting some other uh, opportunities to try and make money, becomes a repo man. And the interesting thing about Otto becoming a repo man is uh, Alex Cox has said that he viewed Otto as a blank slate. That he, you basically, he... Yeah, he comes off that way in the movie. Yeah, and he easily went from punk to repo man without really changing his look at all. Like, he you just put on a shirt and tie and all of a sudden, bam, he's a repo man. Because the original ending of this film was actually supposed to be him joining the Rodriguez brothers and Marlene were actually raising monies for a South American revolution and uh, which was the ending of the movie was him supposed to be which was greenlit and approved of and they were going to shoot it was going to be him joining up with them to go down and become a revolutionary in South America and the whole thing is like again he didn't because he's such a blank slate like he can go from punk to businessman to revolutionary without changing anything it's funny I guess it's just in the uh, in the sheen DNA because I was thinking the same thing watching Platoon 
where mm-hmm. Charlie Sheen is just a blank slate and his character just oscillates from like extreme fascism kill the kill the um citizens to like hey man these are people too we need to respect them in like the blink of an eye just because yeah. he's a blank slate that anything can mm-hmm. uh, go through yeah. so both those boys were good mm-hmm. for that yeah so anyways Otto becomes a repo man and we learn like about the weird world of the repo of the repo men uh, i guess now it would be repo people and um <laughs> And because at the time it was all men. There was a repo chick, as uh, apparently I'm finding In out. 2009, yeah, which was unrelated but sort of related. It was meant to be a spiritual sequel where basically it, it happened after the 2008 like financial collapse when like a lot of stuff was getting repossessed. And it's like, oh, this would be an, inter- an interesting time to do an update on Repo Man. But uh, in this film, in Repo Man, uh, there's also Dr. J... Dr. Frank, who I can never... But the guy played by... J. Pernell. Yeah. Frank Pernell. Yeah, Fox, Fox Harris. Um, is driving around in a Chevy Malibu that has something in the trunk, and the CIA is interested in getting it back. So they put out a basically like a twenty thousand dollar. I think it's like not a reward, but a twenty thousand uh, dollar finders fee. Finders fee for anyone that gets this this Chevy Malibu back to them. So that's what causes the hunt among Cerepo men men to find this this car. Uh, at the same time. Uh, Otto starts seeing sort of Livia. Olivia is the actress's name, right? Her name's Layla. Layla. But she's also sometimes referred to as Lila. I yeah, think. yeah. Layla, Lila, uh, played by Olivia Barish. Um, she so and she's actually working for a UFO uh, group, which is the Unified Unified it? Fruitcake um, outlet. Yes, which Otto thinks is hilarious. Um, so she's also looking He's for. Not wrong. Mm-hmm. So she gets captured by the CIA and then joins up with them. And also, like her whole thing's like we got to find this car before these dead alien bodies d- deteriorate. Um, so basically, all this is happening. And also, Otto's former punk friends are running around Los Angeles on a crime spree, like buying sushi and not paying. Um, They're also knocking off uh, convenience stores. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. liquor stores. Convenience stores, liquor stores, any kind of stores. Um, and it's it's like one mm-hmm. of the cute, no, I don't want to say cute, but things about the film where it's like they're robbing a convenience store and then they leave right before our, our heroes uh, show up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Until, or, or vice versa. Yeah, exactly. Like mm-hmm. they're always just missing each other. And then uh, at the end, there's a shootout. Yeah. Where they all. Because they, they converge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the punks are played by Miguel Sandoval, uh, Dick Rude, and... Jennifer, I can't remember her last name. It's, uh, let me just go up here. Because she's the one person that doesn't have a Wikipedia page when I was doing my research on this movie. Um, but apparently, uh, Jennifer Balgoblin? Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, she's been in a bunch of stuff. She was in Weird Science. She was in, uh, she was in Cherry 2000. Oh, yeah, I think she was in Weird Science. That's right. As a biker girl, she was in Contact. So... But most importantly, Cherry 2000, which is a fan, film that I'm a big fan of. Um, so uh, so basically, the, they all kind of converge because at a certain point, the punks steal the car from Fox Harris, and then they get it, and then Fox Harris gets it back, and then Otto gets it, and then Bud, played by Harry Dean Stanton, steals it from there. And then basically everyone converges as they're trying to get this car. And then at the end of the movie... The plot starts to make less and less sense. And it's just like, all right, just things are moving. Things are happening. <laughs> and then uh, and then at the end of the movie, the, the car starts to glow in a really cool effect where it's not a visual effect. They actually bought uh, what's highly reflective paint, which was at the time used for road signs. 
And apparently this thing was like, for a little bucket of paint, it was like 600 bucks per bucket. And so they painted, because uh, Michael Nesmith on the audio commentary said that they spent like six grand on painting the car, which he clearly was still annoyed about. But it, it looks awesome because yeah, you look at it and good. you think like, this is a visual effect, but it doesn't look like a visual effect. Well, the first time we see the car glowing, I think it is a visual It is, effect. yeah. That's in the underground parking garage yeah. in the hospital where Bud is staying after he was shot by, um, by, uh, by the punks. Um, and then I don't even remember him being shot by the punks. Oh yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the See, there's so I much stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. Did, did not even notice that he was shot because you were focused on Dick Rude's death performance of like the lights are growing dim. Yeah, he's, he's like Billy the Kid. Though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's knocking on heaven's door. It's like I know that that a life of crime led me to this untimely <laughs> demise, and you're just like, oh, this is awesome. Um, the funniest death scene ever. Yeah, and then enter, so at the end of the movie, uh, the only person who can get into the car because they, the CIA brings in everyone. They bring in their, like, uh, special scientists. They bring in, like, religious men. There's a rabbi, a priest, uh, or the the reverend that was on TV, a Catholic bishop, and then I think another religious person. And the first thing the car does is, of course, shoot the Holy Bible. Um, and the only person who can get in is the character of Miller, who's... I assume he's it's also, the mechanic. It's also triggering like a showering, uh, an ice oh, cube hell. shower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is Miller, who I guess is the mechanic at the, the auto yard, the, the yeah, he's yard? Yeah, he's some mechanic of some sort. Yeah, he's also the most he philosophical. Doesn't, he doesn't drive, and yeah, he's philosophical in sort of a conspiracy theory sort of sense, but like zen about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me see if I can get all... Yeah, so like he talks about how... He has the infamous plain of shrimp monologue, which actually wasn't in the original script. It was something when they were auditioning actors, the casting director asked Alice Cox to write something just to use as an audition monologue. And that's the monologue that they used for the character of Miller. And Tracy Walter came in and nailed it. And it was so good that they actually kept it in the movie. So I'm going to do a dramatic reading of the first part of that uh, monologue <laughs> right now. A lot of people don't realize what's really going on. They view life as a bunch of unconnected incidents and things. They don't realize that there's this like lattice or coincidence that lays on top of everything. Give you an example. Show you what I mean. Suppose you're thinking about a Play-Doh shrimp. Suddenly, someone will say like plate or shrimp or Play-Doh shrimp right out of the blue. No explanation. No point in looking for one either. It's all part of the cosmic unconsciousness. Otto responds, you eat a lot of acid, Miller, back in the hippie days? And scene. Yeah. Well, the scene continues. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's all one shot as well. The interesting thing about this film is that it was mostly shot in master shots, which I really appreciate. That was, we were watching a behind-the-scenes thing. They were talking about how Robbie Mueller famously said, I don't shoot inserts. Yeah, and he didn't funny. shoot coverage. He just shot, like, uh, master shots for scenes, which was, I say, it's kind of like... It's the difference between cinematographers that grew up shooting for film and cinematographers that grew up shooting for TV. Because in the 90s, when TV, when when the VHS like era like really took hold in the 80s, because when they were making this film, like Alex Cox didn't even think of VHS as a release because he didn't have one. No one he knew had a, a VCR in 1982 and 1983 when they wrote this movie. So it was very rare. And then once that became a thing, like in the 90s, you'll see all of a sudden TV coverage in, a, in feature films. And that's when I think cinematography, for the most part, going to get in trouble, started to uh, go downhill. It's true. But now TV shows are being shot like films. They're being shot widescreen. Yeah. But they're being shot you, like films. I don't know. It depend, pick the TV show. But like you watch like Succession or something like that. And it's all mm -hmm. like film shots. 
or True Detective. And yeah, True Detective was gimmicky. Yeah, though. very, very dark and shadowy. Yeah. By the way, Cineplex, turn up your friggin' projector bulbs. When I saw Ghostbusters Afterlife, I'm like, I know it's not that dark. It's a daytime scene. It's not that dark. Um, sorry, that's my little gripe because Cineplex dims their bulbs on their projectors for some stupid reason. Stop dimming the bulbs, Cineplex. Come on, man. We know we know what you're doing. Um, so yeah, then Miller gets into the car with Otto and it flies away. Of course, before then, uh, Layla shows up um, and talks to, to Otto as he's about to like get into um, to get into the car and she's like what about our relationship and he's like what and she's like what about our relationship and he just goes F- that yep. and gets into the car and I was saying it's very much like Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the Third yeah. Kind just getting on the alien vessel and just even though he's got off. a wife and two children yeah Otto not so much he, he has a girl that he like went out with once yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> So, yeah, and that's Repo Man. Great and like great photography over the city of Los Angeles, uh, which was shot by Robert Richardson. Um, also, I wanted to talk about when we were... Long before drones. Yes, back when you actually had to get a camera into a goddamn helicopter. None of this, like, I'm going to like sit on my porch and send a drone up and do some... St-. And also, drones can't do that type of filming. They can't move that fast. Drones, I, I think drones are overrated. Sorry, I'm talking a lot this episode, but I really like this film. Obviously. No, I do. Somebody was pointing out the other day, though, that drones do make um, that sort of very cinematic overhead shot that you see a lot of in horror movies, like the classic The Shining going to the Overlook yeah. Hotel. It makes it accessible for uh, people with less means and inabilities to mm-hmm. rent out helicopters. It does, but I'd argue they're not as good. Yeah, it could get overused. I mean, yeah. I've seen good ones and you've seen bad ones. But. Yeah. It's also one of those things, like, there was a movie where its whole gimmick was, it was entirely shot on drones. That doesn't sound good to me. No. Ugh. Like, how do you do a close-up? Oh, crap! Just got hit with the drone. The drone hit me. <laughs> be uh, a good bit, though. Just like yeah. a film where it's all shot on drones, and you get a bunch of where the actors are. It's just constantly the actors ducking out of the way, getting hit by drones. Or when a drone got shot down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you outlaid mm. the plot, but I mean, within the movie, there's all these little little nuggets of greatness, little, yeah. little things, and even you guys were like, "Oh, I didn't notice that before," and like mm-hmm. this is my second time watching it. You guys have watched it a bunch more than me. Yeah. Um, well, like, and the, also the lines of dialogue in this film, like there are so many great ones, like "The more you drive, the less intelligent you are." What does that even mean? It's great though. The interesting thing is that Miller, um, Tracy Walter, who plays Miller. He, uh, can I bring up his info? I've seen him in other things. I was oh, well, uh, well yeah, he's a veteran. Uh, yeah, I mean, you probably most likely he's a Batman Corman guy. He, uh, he was, he played uh, the Joker's goon Bob, the one where he's like, Bob, you are my number one guy. That's right. Yeah. Um, he also starred in a bunch of very popular uh, Yellow Pages commercials, actually, right after Repo Man, where he it says, I let my fingers do the walking because it's like, oh, I walk through the. Yellow Pages. He's in Silence of the Lambs, which yeah, I watched recently. Yeah, he was a De Palma favorite. Who's he in that? He's What's-His-Face. I'll look at him. He's What's-His-Face. That guy, you know. Is he the the guy in the cell beside uh, Lecter? No, not the, not him. Uh, mm-hmm. he's one... I just so, sort of watched that movie recently, yeah. too. So he was also in uh, Jonathan Demi's films Something Wild, Married to the Mob, Beloved, and The Manchurian Candidate. Ah, He's also appeared in films such as Serpico, Annie Hall, Blue Collar, Hardcore, Chuck Norris, 
Chuck Norris's The Octagon, Time Rider, which was the Michael Nesmith film produced film just before this one, Rumblefish, Conan the Destroyer, Midnight Run, Batman, as we said before, Young Guns 2, The Two Jakes, Pacific Heights, City Slickers. Hey, Pacific Heights, I remember that. Cyber, Cyborg 2, Fist of the North Star, Man on the Moon, Aaron Brockovich, and Death to Smoochie. Death to Smoochie. Yeah, the, the Danny DeVito role. He was also in a bunch of Danny DeVito films. He was in Matilda as well. I think he played one of the kid's parents. But, uh, yeah, no, he, he did a lot of stuff, and it was quite good. Oh, yeah, yeah there he is. Yeah. Oh, I remember that uh, mm-hmm. autopsy scene. So yeah, like I mean, that character was was excellent. He said had a lot of good things. Like also, like Harry Dean Stanton was so good in this film. Apparently, he liked to use a real baseball bat, though. Well, it's it's funny to hear like he walked off set a bunch and they wanted to fire him, and it's like, yeah. well, we couldn't though because then I would be the one fired, which is probably true because yeah. Harry Dean is the bigger star. But mm-hmm. it's just funny that he was like throwing his weight around. He's like, I can just walk off set. I'm, I'm Harry Goddamn Dean Stanton. <laughs> Give me a real, real baseball bat. And is he wrong? He's not wrong. <sighs> Who knows? It's one of those things. Like after working with. Blankety blank plan on um, on the movie that I was doing the last time we recorded. Boney Traxton. Boney Traxton. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I learned that sometimes it's not worth it. But I mean, um, that's not a that's not a real actor. We're talking no, about Harry Harry Damn Dean Stanton. Yeah, Harry S. Um, I mean, his famous line in the film is, "Look at those assholes, ordinary f-ing people. I hate them." Like he's just ugh. Well, he lays out the uh, whole eth- uh, the ethos for the the Repo Man, which is they're just um, drawn to intensity. Yeah, well, they're paid to get into tense situations, while well, yeah. ordinary people tend to spend their whole life trying to avoid them. Which is like, yeah, I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to be a Repo Man. This is a yeah. good caution against that occupation for me. Cause... Yeah, well, it leads to the great thing after the. Um... I'm not trying to avoid tense situations yeah. necessarily, but I don't want to always be going into them. That'd be a drag. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, uh, for instance. Um, what was I gonna say? Uh, when they have the the car chase through the L.A. River with uh, with the uh, Rodriguez brothers, it's a beautiful L.A. River. Yeah, <laughs> old cement. <laughs> um, a year later, uh, Robbie Mueller went back to the L.A. River. Yes, for, for to, to live and die in L.A. LA. And they kind of they kind of even joke on the audio commentary, like, "Do you think he just used some of this footage as like, look what I can do?" <laughs> and he's like, "There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of like stuff where it's like shooting on the highways of L.A. Like he was in Repo Man and To Live and Die in L.A." Um, but uh, in that, at the end of that, when uh, the Rodriguez brothers leave Harry Dean Stanton and Amelia Estevez in the, the water, uh, Otto says, whoa, that was intense. And then uh, Harry Dean Stanton says, the life of a repo man is always intense. I just love that quote. It's great. I kind of want to be a repo man now. Um, <laughs> so you're, you're drawn to the, uh, the intense uh, one. Not right? really, but just like the idea of like stealing cars from deadbeats, uh, especially because there's too many cars in this city. But uh, I should point out that Alex Cox always liked Harry Dean Stanton and had even tried to get him in his student film Edge City. Cox described Harry Dean as having an Old West slash cadaver look to him, and that was perfect for the character of Bud. Well, in the uh, you, you went to the washroom, I think, while they were discussing uh, this, this Harry Dean Stanton, because originally when they wanted to get him, they talked to his agent. Mm-hmm. And the agent was like, oh, you don't want Harry Dean Stanton. You want Mick Jagger for this this movie. And I'm just <laughs> trying to imagine this movie with Mick Jagger. In that. Yeah, they also, they before all that, they went to Dennis Hopper. Um, but Dennis Hopper wanted a six-figure salary, and they could only afford a five-figure Dennis salary. Dennis Hopper. Only David Lynch can afford that kind of money. Yeah, although he did get to work with Dennis Hopper on Straight to Hell. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so it, it, it all went around. Um, on the commentary track, they were talking about how, like, 
because in the book it was money but in the commentary track the casting agent was saying uh dennis hopper was still like not sober at the time so he wasn't like in a good place so it was because this was between out of the blue and uh and i guess texas chainsaw massacre 2 which was his first film post sobriety (laughs) he does not seem sober in that movie no and then he did hoosiers um so Harry Dean Stanton, let's talk about him. He, he had a long and storied career, appearing in such films as Cool Hand Luke, Kelly's Heroes, Dillinger, The Godfather Part Two, Alien, Paris, Texas, Escape from New York, Red Dawn, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Pretty in Pink, The Last Temptation of Christ, Wild at Heart, Down Periscope. Yes, I'm talking about the Kelsey the Grammer. The Kelsey Grammer movie. The Kelsey Grammer submarine comedy, which we all saw back in the day. Was that a Zucker film? I don't think so. Maybe, no. It wasn't funny enough. It wasn't as like gag, 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 gag. Maybe it was. I don't know. Uh, David Lynch's The Straight Story, as well as Inland Empire and Twin Peaks The Return. Uh, the film that ironically was the most successful that he ever appeared in was Marvel's The Avengers in 2012. He was in that? He was in that. He's the one that uh, finds Bruce Banner after the Hulk uh, falls from the helicarrier. And then his final film, which he was also the star of, directed by John Carroll Lynch, was called Lucky, which also featured David Lynch in just an acting role. That's a John, John Carroll Lynch directed that. Yep, John Carroll Lynch. that he also directed. JCL. Yep, the Zodiac Killer himself. The Zodiac Killer, yes, Arthur Lee Allen. <laughs> yeah, coming out of retirement. Who I just saw in the, uh, it was the second season of Channel Zero. Oh, yeah. And I was like, man, because I'd seen him previously in an episode of Boardwalk Empire, and he was like, he got a lot of weight. Yeah. So when I saw him in Channel Zero, I'm like, oh, he's lost the weight. I'm glad. Yeah. Who knows? Rooting, maybe maybe, for maybe he was just wearing a suit in Boardwalk Empire. That's probably true. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope so, because not he's, good for your heart. He's also in that new show starring Ryan Philippe, which... Uh, Ryan Philippi was was advertised as being the star of it. I can't remember the title of it. It was advertised <laughs> as being the star of the show. And I, I like the first episode was just on TV and I watched it. And then he then uh, John Carroll Lynch plays like the local cop who's like good natured. And then at the end of the episode, John Carroll Lynch just kills Ryan Philippi and that's it. And I was like, that's actually pretty sh- ballsy to advertise an entire TV series starring one actor just to have him get killed off in the, at the end of the first episode. Yeah, that's the, the old scream approach. Yeah, that's good. Um, like Steven Seagal, an executive decision. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about. Um, but well, you were talking about Harry Dean. So I guess that's that's we're done with. No, uh, what, what, like, it, but like, he did so many things in Alien was the my first exposure to old HDS, but as I'm sure it's true for a lot of people. I think mine was actually Repo Man. But uh, let's talk about the soundtrack of Repo Man because it is a banger. So first off, we've got Repo Man written and performed by Iggy Pop because uh, there's a uh, instrumental version that opens up the film, and then there is a one with lyrics at the end. And Iggy Pop actually got the script for Repo Man before it was made to write the film, and he actually includes like references to the script that didn't make it into the final movie, like using my head as an ashtray. Was a, There was a scene where someone puts out a, um, a cigar on uh, Otto's head, and things like a page out of a comic book because the script came with four pages of a comic book. Um, and Iggy Pop even lightly set, referenced the theme to the 60s Batman TV series in the in the song because he's like, it's got to have that propulsive, like, do 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 which it has, which also became a theme when Lost Plugs, who did the majority of the, or The Plugs, sorry, who did the majority of the soundtrack, uh, like, referenced it uh, for, like, their score, like, especially during the, the Los Angeles River car chase. Then you got TV Party by Black Flag, classic song. Like a lot of, and also like a lot of the punk rock songs are kind of like they're not buried in the mix, but they're playing 
they're diegetic music. So they're actually yeah, in it's the, diegetic music, and almost all the LA punk songs are these were like the key um, mm-hmm. hardcore LA hardcore punks one hundred and one. Yeah, coup de tap by the. There's two appearances by the Circle Jerks on the. Uh, on the uh, on the soundtrack, coup d'état, or sorry, which is coup d'état, which is when they're slam dancing outside of the house yeah. party, Kevin's place, it plays, and then there's when the sh- their lounge version of when the shit hits the so fan, funny. when the auto actually goes with Layla to meet up with the head of the CIA in this lounge, and the Circle Jerks are just performing as a lounge act, and that's mm-hmm. where the 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 punks meet up with uh, with Otto for the first time since that scene at the house party and Otto remarkably says like ugh I can't believe I used to like these guys yeah. in, in reference to the circle jerks which is hilarious but um, but yeah and then uh, you got institutionalized by the suicidal tendencies yes a classic classic track uh, suicidal tendencies ha- are still going aren't they oh yeah yeah, yeah. they are yeah I actually mm-hmm. thought that was a much later track because I do remember the video for that playing on uh it was very famously played on Beavis and Butthead, so yeah. there's some iconic commentary there. Yeah, Beavis and Butthead, but also I was just trying to remember the Much Music uh, metal mm-hmm. show. And I, I... The Power Hour? Oh, there was the other one. Loud? Well, Loud. It's, it's an iconic video because it's got, uh, you got Jack Nance and uh, Mary Warnov as uh, right. the front man's the parents, parents so. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but also, that was the era when music videos would be made for songs like years after they came out. Yeah. Like, that's how Danzig yeah. had a hit in the 90s with a song that came out in 1987. Yeah, it's, uh, that's yeah. what I figured. It was probably like they made the music video mm-hmm. in, like, 1990, even though the song was old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it would have been reissued on CD, and they had to pump up those CD numbers from the, from the original vinyl. Um, and then you've got some stuff by The Plugs. Um, so they did Ombre Securito, Secret Agent Man. They did El Clavo, Waya Cruz, um, which I can't remember which one that is they also did a bunch of stuff that's not on the soundtrack but it's in the film they did covers of born to be wild and flight of the valkyrie i think there was one more that they did um but it was good there's also a uh the burning sensations covered pablo picasso by jonathan richmond which famously played when uh, otto is following layla down the street in his uh in the car that he just uh uh, repossessed and he smashes into some garbage that some yeah. British woman comes out and yells at him for smashing the garbage and saying put it back and he's like why'd you put it in the middle of the street she's like it's not in the middle of the street it's in the corner of the street which is correct she's yeah. very well uh, correct on that one and then she pops up again at the um, at the police station not the, police the station. hospital hospital, hospital. hospital still complaining about someone knocking over her garbage and then as that all goes by she goes that's him and then she keeps complaining about it then there is Fear's classic Let's Have a War, uh, another seminal film, and uh, The Juicy Bananas, which I don't think was a real band, uh, but they did the song Bad Man, which is a banger of a song, uh, and it is actually Cy Richardson quoting lines from the movie, especially about like when he was talking about the when he's driving with Otto, he pulls out a cassette, and he's like, you like music? And Otto's like, yeah, sure. And he's like, well, I was into these dudes before anyone. It used to party with them. They even asked me to be their manager. But I said, F*** that. Being a manager isn't a job for a man. <laughs> a pop a pop band manager. A pop manager, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. And then Real 10, which is the song that plays as the car starts to lift off, which is also by The Plugs. So The Plugs have three songs on the soundtrack, in addition to their songs that aren't listed on the soundtrack. Yeah, The Plugs score is fantastic. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost like surf music meets spaghetti western yeah, which it's is... Almost, it's pretty spaghetti western-esque in their Yeah, which knowing, but it's also 
quite surf-esque yeah. as well. Well, knowing Alex Cox's love of spaghetti westerns yeah. and his like love of living in Los Angeles, like California at the time, it's like that's a perfect blend of his mm-hmm. of his two um, his two. How do I put it? And the plugs yeah. also being like uh, Chicano punks. Uh. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very diverse film as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Which I think if. Because even uh, what was it? Uh, Penelope Spears is like suburbia. It's pretty much just all white kids except for yeah. the the cop that's black. Um, and also the decline of Western civilization. It's, yeah, it's all white kids. Yeah. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Um, I mean, yeah. It's it's a shame that like he didn't stick with lost or with the plugs. I can't even call them lost plugs. I think that probably is actually their name. But the plugs is how they're credited. Kind of like how Miguel Sandoval is credited as Michael Sandoval. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, guys, I'm talking too much on this episode. No, no, go ahead, man. You've got um, the most to say about it. Yeah, what else can we talk about here? Um, it's, it's a bunch of randomness. There's, as, as you were saying, yeah. it was like the, the little old lady with the um, popping up uh, with the garbage. You've got like weird little affectations that are never mm-hmm. actually explained, like uh, what's-his-face always wearing the hairnet. Um, yeah. And it's just like, okay. I guess uh, because he didn't want to get his hair out of place because he had very clocked hair. <laughs> One of the Rodriguez brothers, yeah. But it's just like that that's what made me think of Wes Anderson, just those like little uh, little details all over the place. Sure, sure. And the digs it's uh, Scientology, uh Cy oh. Richardson's character yeah. tells Emilio Estevez to uh was like, hey, this book, will, this diuretics, it'll change your life. And you, th- you have the following uh, play a shrimp scene where he's throwing um, a copy of diuretics into uh, into the gar- into the fire, into the fire, yeah, which is an oil drum that, uh, yeah. Miller's tending to, yeah. This is, this is when we meet Miller, I think. I believe he was in an earlier scene, but he wasn't re- didn't really oh, say okay, anything. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, um, I'm just going to talk through some other stuff that I have. Here are some notes that I made from the audio commentary track. So, and I've also like I tried to reread the the chapter on on Repo Man, but it's like it's too much too much research. Um, uh, Lance Hendrickson was originally up for the role uh, that Fox Harris played. Um, he was the second choice. The opening scene is actually a composite of two different shoots with two different DOPs. So if you'll notice that occasionally the police officer changes from being the original actor into Alex Cox himself and then back into the original police officer. Did not notice that. I know, it was smooth. Very smooth in its, in its height covering up stuff. And it was all in-camera effects. So the two cinematographers of this film were Robbie Mueller, the famous European cinematographer who I'm going to talk about a bit right now. Well, one thing I'd point out about this film is they have all mm-hmm. these uh, blonde FBI agents who are all... Yeah. Another affectation that's not really explained. They just mm-hmm. all have blonde hair. Uh, but they're it's all California, man. They all have these mirror shades, and I'm like, that must be a nightmare for cinematographers. Just mirrored shades mm-hmm. all over the place. Just glasses in general are apparently very difficult. <laughs> um, a friend of mine directed a, a TV movie, and in it, uh, the lead character is playing, wearing glasses. And I watched, like, uh, they sent me a link, and I watched it, and I was like, hey, is this the final version? And she was like, uh, yeah, why? I'm like, because I can see the lights in every single shot of this, like, all the reflection in the glasses. Um, so Robbie Mueller was just getting, um, getting uh, starting to get noticed in North America, but was already the top cinematographer in Europe. He was known for his collaborations with Vim vendors on such films as Summer in the City, Die Angst des Tormans <laughs> Blem Ifmetter. That's my German. Um uh, the Scarlet Letter, Alice in the Cities, The Wrong Move, Kings of the Road, The American Friend. The Scarlet uh, Letter? The, the Demi Moore, Gary no, Oldman? No, no, no. Another oh, okay. Scarlet Letter, yeah. <laughs> and Paris, Texas, which he also did with Harry Dean Stanton. He also did two films with Peter Bogdanovich before Repo Man, St. Jack, and they all laughed. But it was Repo Man that brought Mueller to North America. 
Uh, and he quickly went on to film To Live and Die in L.A., Down by Law, Barfly, Mystery Chain, Train, Mad Dog and Glory, Dead Man, Breaking the Waves, Ghost Dog the Way of the Samurai, Dancer in the Dark, 24-Hour Party People, and Coffee and Cigarettes. So, and then the other cinematographer who worked on the film who did, like, pickup shots was Robert Richardson. Uh, so he is another well-known cinematographer. This was kind of his first real uh, professional Hollywood shoot. Uh, he would go on to do a lot of stuff with uh, Oliver, Oliver Stone. Stone. So like he did El Salvador. He did Platoon, Wall Street, Talk Radio, Born on the Fourth of July, The Doors, JFK, Natural Born Killers, a bunch of other stuff. He also uh, did the another punk film called Dudes, directed by Penelope Spiris. Um, he uh, sorry didn't direct, but he did the cinematography. He shot A Few Good Men. Casino, Bringing Out the Dead, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, The Aviator, Inglorious Bastards, Shutter Island, Eat, Pray, Love, Hugo, Django Unchained, World War Z, The Hateful Eight, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and this year's Venom, Let There Be Carnage. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. So all over the place. Um, like we said, the smoking... Chris Penn was originally up to play the role, the Kevin, the role that Xander Schloss played. And actually Xander Schloss... I could see that because Chris Penn was really yeah. tall and had similar hair. Yeah, and he Xander was Sch- and he was skinny in the early yeah. 80s. So he also... So the thing is like Xander Schloss was actually cast in the role and then uncast when Chris Penn signed on and then brought back in once Chris Penn didn't work out. He didn't work out with the... He didn't have the, the right vibe for to play Kevin. Uh, Xander Schloss was also a PA on the film. So that's like, so he stuck around and worked on all of it. Which character are you guys talking Kevin, uh, the nerdy friend. Oh, okay. The Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, the Napoleon oh. Dynamite lookalike. Well, it's, well, I guess Chris Penn went on to do The Wildlife mm-hmm. at this time, the spiritual sequel to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, Hall. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so like we were discussing earlier, the pine tree, uh, the scented pine trees that are in every car, they were actually uh, one of the, the sponsors of the film. Uh, or, or they provided like a free pine trees, but the thing is, they were all rejects. They were unscented. So they were un. So you didn't have. They weren't oppressively uh, being smothered in the scent of pine. Uh, another funny sight gag is uh, when when the police are investigating the mm-hmm. state trooper's disappearance. Uh, one of the police motorcycles has a has a pine tree, which wouldn't make any sense obviously no. for a motorcycle. It's also on a hospital door in a later scene yeah. as well. That's great. I love that stuff. Um. Well, that's actually mm-hmm. how he knows. Uh, he, that's to mark that it's Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. So staying alive, uh, we noticed it was playing on the marquee. So as they drive down through Los Angeles, which is actually um, Broadway, South Broadway in Los Angeles, that's the street they're driving on, they pass by the or- the, the historic Orpheum Theater and staying alive, the, the 1983 sequel to Saturday Night Fever directed by Sylvester Stallone is playing. Wasn't it also written by Sylvester Stallone? I Probably. think he wrote it and directed it. Sure, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, we're going to have you dance, Travolta. Hey, he won an Oscar again. for his writing, didn't he? For Rocky? For Rocky, yeah, yeah but not, nothing since then. <laughs> All right, Johnny, just go and start walking. Um, that's your that's your slice, Stallone? Yeah. I don't know. That's terrible. <laughs> My Henneke is much better. I was thinking about bringing back Michael Henneke for this episode, <laughs> episode 100. Oh, I, should, I can't even do I, 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 it. In my rewatches, I didn't mention I'd rewatched Funny Games US. But. Ah, you watched the US. Funny Games. <laughs> okay. oh, I still US haven't version? seen the original, and it just seems pointless. To, anyway, we're going. <laughs> Henneke wins. It's still, it's still good. It's part of the Criterion Home Invasion series. Uh, I can see it. Yeah, it's it's a... Uh, it's better than Scream. Yeah, but it's a film that haunts you, that's for sure. Henneke is so excited for Scream 5. Um... <laughs> 
So yeah, so the the, uh, the Orpheum Theater um, actually opened on February 15, 1926 and still exists to this day. Um, had a lot of vaudeville and a lot of films uh, be there. Uh, so they have, like we said, the hero Chevy Malibu got stolen two days into production. Um, Bobby Ellis was the head stunt driver. And basically, anytime you saw a dangerous car stunt, he was the one driving. Um, Olivia Borash, uh, who plays Layla, she was thought of for the film because she was nice to... So uh, one of the actors playing the Rodriguez brothers, he was a stand-in on a previous film that she was in, and she was the only one of those actors who was nice to him. So let's talk about Olivia Borash for a bit, uh, or Barash. Um, sorry, I have to click search. So she plays the role of, of uh, Layla. She would go on to appear in the films Tough Turf, which we covered on the podcast, which is one of my favorites. Uh, Paul Schrader's Patty Hearst. I do not remember that podcast episode. You don't? That was the movie that I was like, it's great. I love it. But... No recollection. Okay. Well, you better start. That's a movie I saw at the Royal in 35 millimeter. And it's dynamite. It's crazy. So, yeah. So, she was in Tough Turf, Patty Hearst, Dr. Alien, Floundering, and the 2009 semi-sequel Repo Chick. We should also talk about Cy Richardson, who played Miller. So he's great. He's yeah. light. He, oh, sorry. He's he's no. He's light. Yeah, you're correct. Sorry, yeah, Miller is the uh, is Tracy Walter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how did I screw that up. But oh, Miller light. Yeah, he's been in so many of Alex Cox's films. But his screen debut was actually playing the fairy godmother in 1977's erotic musical comedy Cinderella. That same year, he also played the role erotic musical comedy. Yeah, I just kind of rushed right through that. Damn. Um, yeah. Uh, and also, that, that man playing the fairy godmother. This is a very interesting film. I want to... You want to see it? Yeah. Uh, the same year he also... Uh, of 1977, he also played the role of Petey's father in the Rudy Ray Moore... In Rudy Ray Moore's yeah, Petey, Petey Wheatstraw, The Devil's Son-in-Law, which is a film we, we watched for one of my movie nights online. We might do it on the podcast. Uh, that was a pandemic watch. Yeah. yeah. Have we done any Rudy Ray Moore on the podcast? Did we do Disco Godfather? I thought we did Disco Godfather. Possibly. Almost certain we did Disco Godfather, and I thought we did Dolomite, but I... No, no, we, we didn't, we didn't we do did Dolomite. Dolomite. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, Wasn't Scott Shurik on for uh, Disco Godfather? Maybe. I think he was. He was on for Belly for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't believe we did Belly. <laughs> well, he was also the Room, of course. Yeah, yeah. That that raucous episode that was a nightmare to edit. Um, <laughs> so he wound up going on to work repeatedly with Alice Cox in the film Sid and Nancy, Straight to Hell, Walker, The Searchers 2.0. He also appeared in the mainstream films Tapeheads. The Searchers 2.0, the sequel to the famous John Wayne film? Well, <laughs> not really. Basically, what it is is about there's a screening of a. It, it was inspired by. Uh, there was this. I think it was the Alamo Draft House started doing what they called the Rolling Roadshow, which is where they take an inflatable screen and go out to where a film was filmed and project the film and watch it. So, like, they did The Searchers in Monument Valley. And so Searchers 2.0 is about um, there's a old Western that's playing in Monument Valley uh, and two of the old Western actors who are now like borderline homeless uh, want to go to that screening so they can uh, beat the crap out of, uh, the, I think, the director who directed it or something. And so they kind of con uh, one of the actor's daughter to drive them and... I haven't seen it, but I want to. It's one of those films where it's like, again, it had that very small DVD release. Um, but he also appeared, uh, Cy Richardson also appeared in the mainstream films Tapeheads, Colors, Bad Dreams, Mystery Train, Sleep with Anger, Men at Work with Emilio Estevez. Oh, yeah. 
the Griff- and Charlie Sheen and Charlie Sheen. But I was thinking more of as a as a callback to Otto, the Grifters, Human Nature, Surviving Christmas, and the Dukes of Hazard: The Beginning. So a very long. Dukes of Hazard: The Beginning. Was, I think that, that wasn't was, the Johnny Knoxville one. No, that was the the sequel where like we yeah, can't get where anyone back. They couldn't back. even get Sean William Scott or Johnny Knoxville. We can't get them back, so we're gonna do a prequel, which will explain why everyone's slightly uh, younger. I remember that. And in different actors. That was a straight um, TV one for sure. I so, think Willie Nelson might have still been involved, though, because he's like, yeah, sure. Nah, whatever, you pay me Maybe Jessica Simpson. Maybe. No, no, she was not in it. Um, so the Untouchables, uh, which were a mod band from L.A., they actually play the brothers that beat up Otto for trying to steal, repo their mother's car, which is where we got the great uh, The Plugs cover of Born to be Wild playing as they're riding their Vespas down uh, some Los Angeles streets. Um, Miguel Sandoval, um, after a robbery, when they're humming uh, Ride of the Valkyries, uh, he stops uh, to look at a homeless man and shakes his hand. This was an homage to uh, A Clockwork Orange, and Alex Cox basically saying, like, see, these guys aren't as bad as the game in A Clockwork Orange. Well, they're not drinking that psychedelic milk. Yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, so interestingly enough, the house where Light shoots the blanks at the house after someone takes a shot at Otto is actually the house that was used uh, as Tony Montana's mother's and sister's house in Scarface. Huh. Which almost has an like a uh, an identical shot when Tony Montana pulls up, even though they were filming the film before they were filming Repo Man before Scarface came out. So like, there's almost an identical shot. Tony Montana pulls up, the camera pans around as he walks around the car to the house, which is almost similar to Emilio Estevez. In, uh, in I like how film. you're throwing the extract. Estevez. Estevez. <laughs> Estevez. Estevez. Um, Repo Man has actually featured the first use of airbags in a film, like when the uh, when the CIA men crash their car, the airbags go off. Um, the inside of the government van is actually the m- master control room of the UCLA television department. This is technically a Christmas movie, which we realized. Yep, they're singing. I think Joy to the World or something like that. Or jingle, at one bells. Point. Oh, jingle bells. Jingle bells. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. National Lampoon's Vacation had an airbag. Well, it's a garbage bag. That's an airbag. Right. Right. <laughs> um. There's also the detail with the with the woman with the glove. I guess it's a metal hand, but it's a, it's a, it yeah. seems like a Michael Jackson so, reference. So that basically was caused by their... Sometimes a low budget just gets too low. Because initially, and even now, Alex Cox is like still bummed out about it. Because he wanted it to look like a robot hand, and they just couldn't afford it. So in the, in the end, it's a glove, and when she takes off the glove, it looks like she has a tinfoil hand. Ah. Yeah. So that's that's how they got around that, even though it didn't really work. Um. Uh, so Jimmy Buffett has a cameo in this film as one of the the blonde men in ba- in black. He's actually in the scene where they burn Fox Harris's body, and because he was a friend of Michael Nesmith at the time, and Good to see that, yep, yeah, and uh, and he he I don't think he could actually use his real name and be credited, so they cre- credited him as Jimmy Buffet. You just take one T off the end of Buffett. It's Buffet. <laughs> uh, that's how you do that. Um, oh, this, so at the in the hospital when the SWAT member uh, who wears the tear gas on his chest, the Rodriguez brothers pull the pins and the tear gas goes off. Um, he was actually, his face was actually burned when they did that. I don't think they tested it out. Jesus. So they did that once. <laughs> um, Muhammad Ali almost appeared at the end of the film. 
but uh, that didn't happen. Well, what was he going to do? He was, the whole thing was like, because they showed like, okay, the government men can't get up to the car. The religious men can't get up to the car. And then a helicopter lands and out comes Muhammad Ali. And he's like, got boxing gloves on and he's ready to take the car. But even he can't, with all of his strength, get to the car. This, this would definitely be heading into like lampoon territory. Yeah, yeah. And I'm actually kind of glad he's not in it. Um, there's, there's also that strange scene where uh, Emilio Estevez he gets out of the Harry Dean Stanton's car. They have a fight. This film's very strange in its plotting because yeah. they have this weird little fight, and then this is a big plot point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're not speaking to each other. And it's just like they had a little disagreement. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, he gets out of the car and he's walking uh, through Bumtown. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's they they take out that junkie. The, the people come around, pick up the junkie, and, and put him in a. And they're in hazmat suits. In hazmat suits. And there's also somebody narrating this, oddly enough, which yeah. was just like a strange tidbit. Like, why mm-hmm. is this being narrated? Narrating what's happening, yeah. Again, I love this movie. It didn't even sound like uh, yeah. someone on the street, though. It sounded like a radio, like uh, mm-hmm. somebody was yeah. like... Yeah. Dijak yeah. radio. Yeah, I mean, there's so much stuff with this movie going on. We barely scratched the surface. And like um, the Central American conflict at the time, is there's a lot of... Oh, yeah, references to that. Because Alice Cox was following that huge. I mean, that's what... Yeah, he was very pro-Sandinist. Uh... Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. Like, so Straight to Hell, because Straight to Hell, even though now it's this weird cult movie that no one really has heard of, it actually was meant to be a big, massive release because it starred and featured a soundtrack by Elvis Costello, The Pogues, Pray for Rain. Who else was in that? Um Lots of like Elvis Costello's in the movie playing a waiter. Like it's it's it was Strummer. Oh, Joe, Joe Strummer. Strummer yeah. yeah, of course. Um, Courtney Love, although she was she was a music yeah musician at the time. So and so it was supposed. Grace Jones is in that movie. Yeah. Um. So it was supposed to be a ma- massive thing, but initially it was it only got made because they were going to do a tour with all of those bands in Nicaragua. And so they'd all taken the month off to go down and do this tour. They'd all like set aside time and book, and they had like the financing for it. And then some point, someone at a certain point when they went to go get the insurance for the tour was like, you got to be kidding me. You can't go to Nicaragua. It's a war zone. So they had all of these musicians, musicians sitting around for a month, and they're like, what can we do? So Alex Cox and Dick Rude, who um, played Duke the Punk in this movie, sat down and wrote a script in like two days, and that's how they got straight to hell. And went to Spain and shot it uh, in an old spaghetti western town that had been rotting. I think it was... The town um, from the Charles Bronson film, A Man Called Bastard, um, or A Man Called Hell, one of those two. <laughs> Either one's a good title. Yeah, they're great titles. Um, and they did find out that when they were shooting straight to hell that like, oh, all these doorways are a little a little lower than you'd expect. And it was because Charles Bronson is... Uh, is, is He's a short man. He's on the shorter side. Yeah, and he's, he's, he's a short he's, king. He's not too... Uh, he's, he's a little uh, self-conscious about his height. So they lo- they made lower doorways to make him seem taller. I, I remember seeing this uh, Bronson film that's on YouTube. I forget. It's like a shootout at Boot Hill. I think it's called like that. Mm-hmm. And his character is like the usual Charles Bronson tough guy. But then you find out his secret is, A, he's short and he's uh, sensitive about it. B, he's a virgin. He's also sensitive about that. Huh. It's a strange movie. Yeah, that, that seems strange. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. What else can we talk about Repo Man? I mean, we've... Uh, I'm sure I can dive into like all kinds of weirdness if we really want to, but I don't want to get too deep. Maybe we'll just we'll just run through a little bit more trivia. Well, this is as I, I think this is the type of film where on rewatches you notice something new, and I guess that's yeah. sort of how it was designed. But as you were saying, he didn't know if he was going to make another film, so it just seems like it's just throwing everything, all the yeah. ideas they had at the wall, and definitely mm-hmm. the film reflects that. So there's a lot in it. Yeah. 
Uh, as you were saying, like the little, um, like when they go to the convenience store and there's a little uh, sign for the plate of shrimp, uh, mm -hmm. which is on the, which harkens back to the early oh, yeah. monologue. And the also page. the digs at televangelism because, you know, he, mm -hmm. the televangelist is just a constant presence throughout the movie. Yeah. What? And reflecting the social conservative mores of America mm -hmm. in 1984. Yeah. Yes, but also uh, there's that scene where um, Harry Dean Stanton is like they're talking about this and that, and he's like, "You're not a communist, are you?" <laughs> I don't allow any communists in my car. No Christians either. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So much, so many good. Like just sort of like, wait, what? Um, but no, there's so many good things. Um, also, uh, like Fox Harris, who played uh, the doctor, and he like couldn't drive, and he like apparently he like almost hit people regularly, and he almost crashed the car into like a gas pump which could have been totally disastrous he also throughout the film he rocks the the sunglasses with the one one lens yeah. missing which is also a look that old dirty bastard used to rock mm -hmm. back in the uh, wu-tang heyday yeah he also uh talks about how he gave himself a lobotomy yes not at, did it and like when Otto goes like didn't it hurt not at all <laughs> he's talking about his friend who uh, built the neutron bomb and yeah who got a lobotomy? Yeah, yeah, which actually I think was meant to be him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't, you want to go into final thoughts or? Sure. I mean, my another favorite joke of mine is when uh, Layla uh, goes to a payphone that's ringing to answer it, and it's Fox Harris calling her, and she's like, "Like, I can't understand you. Are you using a scrambler?" And then it cuts to him in another payphone, being like, "I can't understand what you're saying. I'm using a scrambler." It's funny stuff, yeah. So let's go final thoughts. Phil, what's your final thoughts on Repo Man? Although these won't be your final thoughts forever because I'm sure you'll see it again. No, yeah, no. Uh, it's <laughs> There's something new every time. I've Yeah, like I love this movie. It's it's funny every time. It's it's all there's there's like a dreamlike quality to it, which I also love that just sucks me in. Um it's just great. And yeah, yeah as to go back to your previous point, the movie is a grower. Like this is a movie I um, first watched on A and E as a kid. It was just a regular Saturday afternoon uh, movie with, of course, the, the TV edit version, which you did not get mm -hmm. into. Uh, Melon Farmer is flip uh, you, yeah, flip, yeah, fl flip you, flip you is a classic TV edit. Uh, yeah. But uh, Melon Farmer is probably the most iconic expletive from the TV edit of uh, Repo Man. Yeah. But yeah, I, it's a movie that really confused me at the time. It was just a real head scratcher as a kid, but it always fascinated me. And I kept mm -hmm. coming back to it over the years. And it's a movie I will continue to enjoy on subsequent viewings, which I'm sure there will be many uh, more. Maybe of. even many more tonight. Um, yeah. <laughs> no. Um, that's it. That's about it. Yeah. Cool. All right, Kit. What are your final-ish thoughts on Repo Man? Until well, I can. As I was saying, it's just like a like a vibe. Like it's it's. I definitely enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed the parts of it. Um, it's still like this. Is my second time seeing it. it. Still feels like you know how um some of the movies that you really enjoy, you feel like they're your movies. Yeah. Uh, and then some movies that people show you, and it's like that's their movie. So it still feels like it's not. It's not my movie. I didn't grow up with this. I don't yeah. have those this, these kind of nostalgic vibes with mm -hmm. it. But uh, still feels like I'm being shown a movie. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I dig it. 
I like the kind of pointlessness of it, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. It's a hangout movie. You just kind of hang out. Because the thing is, the plot itself doesn't make sense and doesn't no, really, and and it doesn't it really go anywhere. really deteriorates <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as, as the movie goes on. Apart. It's like, why are they in the hospital now? Yeah. Wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah. It's like video drum levels of like nonsensical. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, I want to hang out with Miller and Light and uh, and Bud and all those characters. Sorry, uh, like I wouldn't want to hang out with them, to no, be honest but in, with the, you, in the movie, be, in the movie, in the movie. Cause and be uh, just, it's funny when, uh, when we first meet like the punks and it's like they're mm-hmm. just moshing out behind a building and just pushing yeah. each other and it's like man that does not look like fun <laughs> it's interesting because i was listening to an interview with henry rollins uh a it's while like ago. just hanging out with the it'd be like yeah. being a jackass guy except not getting paid it just wouldn't but, be fun so it's interesting i was listening to an interview with just to, to make a quick side note uh with henry rollins and he was discussing about how like at the older he gets the more he prefers to play metal to metal shows like metal festivals because he's like metal guys they wear beards they play dungeons and dragons they they're not like like where he's like punk rockers though it's still like why are we still mosh moshing and slamming into each other and hurting without one another? the speed and the cocaine i don't see how you could do it i i i put my years in in the uh, in the pit and i never did speed or cocaine fair enough but yeah. it doesn't sound like it's not really fun that, that i guess maybe it it's an adrenaline kick when you get into it yeah my last mosh pit was when i was 29 and the next morning i felt it and i was like oh not doing this anymore but it was great but uh, yeah, and then like the house party that he goes to, and he's like, he's with the girl, and then he goes up to get her a beer, and he comes back, and then his buddy's in bed with her. That's just a bad friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a good friend. Yeah. Who had just gotten out of like juvenile detention or juvenile, juvenile hall or something. He's just, he's just referred to as the slammer, because oh, they're yeah. all like 18 or so. Yeah. 17, 18. But there's also a funny detail in scene, because like Emilio Estevez is like, um, folding his pants yeah <laughs> right before the foreplay and he just mm-hmm. lies there does nothing but the, the whole folding the pants detail is really mm-hmm. funny you gotta, yeah you gotta keep your crease intact on the pants even in your jeans um so is that it for your final thoughts kit yeah i, I, I don't have mon- many more thoughts on it as you guys have been yeah on. um for my final thoughts i don't know what to say like i uh you know i love this like i realize that this is actually uh year 20 of after first watching this film, because I saw it when I was 17, and I'm now, sadly, 37. What? Um, going on 38. Um, yeah, so I saw it 20 years ago for the first time, uh, probably on VHS. Uh, probably, was it this time of year? Maybe in October or September, because it was, like, my first year of university when I was sort seeking out all the punk movies that I couldn't find uh, back in Nova Scotia. And uh, at the time, I was kind of like, I don't know what this movie is. Um, but it grew on me, and it continues to grow on me. I've owned it on uh, DVD, and it's like 2005 Special Edition. Now there's the fantastic, fantastic, fantastic uh, Criterion Collection restoration on Blu-ray, which we watched tonight. It did look good. Yeah. I mean, that's also like the other thing, too, with all these restorations coming out now. It's just like, man, when you shot on film, you can constantly make things look better. Uh, but now it's like with digital, you're only going to be as good as you were when it when it came out so it's like yeah they're, they're, the neons really pop on the blu-ray mm-hmm. yeah it looks so good i mean it also reminds me of uh it, it's very similar to speaking of robbie Mueller, his uh cinematography on the american friend with dennis hopper oh, yeah. and uh, bruno gans mm-hmm. which is one of probably my favorite vim vendors film for that matter also shot by robbie Mueller. it's probably my my favorite as well yeah have you ever seen the american friend kit i don't believe i have no. maybe if we ever do like 
death by culture we'll do uh we'll do the american <laughs> friend um but yeah so back to this film i don't know it's got a great punk rock soundtrack it's got a great attitude it's got the dialogue is fantastic the lines just like they're endlessly quotable and the characters are good the one one uh, piece of the film that we didn't talk about at all was actually emilio estevez and um we, saw, but he, we established he's the blank slate of the film yeah. and he pretty much is yeah yeah i know and, and kind of like right now like I, I really didn't want to like go through all his filmography like mighty ducks mighty ducks 2 mighty ducks 3 mighty ducks the tv series um well we talked how men at work is the spiiritual sequel to this <laughs> was that on when we were recording or was that uh in between? i don't remember I mean, yeah. if we, we recorded it or not yeah, uh, I mean, Emilio Estevez right now, like, he allegedly is an anti-vaxxer because he, uh, he quit the Mighty Ducks series because they had a vaccine policy, so. Oh, yeah, that's a show now. Yeah, yeah, on Disney+. Ah. Plus, Everything's a show now. Yeah, everything is a show now. Yeah, but back to Repo Man. It's fantastic. It's great. Um, the interesting thing uh, that I pointed, I didn't get a chance to point out is that when uh, Otto and Light hang out. They actually break every single rule of Bud's repo co- code. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... How, how so? Uh, well, they carry a gun. Oh, okay. They break into a car. They break into a car. Break into a car, yep. Uh, what else do they do? There's a few other things, too. Uh, they, they aren't anonymous. Oh, yeah, they do harm to the vehicle. That's true. Oh, yeah. They damage the vehicles, but still... Oh, it gets shot at, though. It's kind of yeah. not their fault. Yeah. Still fun, though. Um, so yeah, I mean, to end it, you know, I can just say this movie is intense, but then again, the life of a Repo Man is always intense. There you go. Um, so with that being said, this has been episode 100 of Death 100. by Video. I feel like I should have had bigger thoughts. I know, me too. That's why I'm like, oh, we're doing Repo Man? I'm like, Ugh. I'm also tired. Like, I got up early today to, like, type up my notes and clean my apartment, and now it's I'm a very, like, It's a very sleepy Sunday, you know? Yeah. It's, first it's been first snowing. big snow in the city. Yeah. But we'll be back with uh, episode 102, 101, which will either be our look back at the previous 100 episodes or it could be our Christmas episode, depending on whenever that DVD arrives in the mail. Oh, hey. Oh, uh, well, yeah. So our Christmas episode this year will be... I'll leave it a secret for now. I, I've, it's a film I've never seen. If, if Santa's not too plagued by the supply chain. Huh? I I don't know. I got I to notice that it's shipped and it should arrive here on December 8th, so... Fingers crossed. Santa Slay with Bill Goldberg. No. <laughs> no, we will not be doing Santa Slay. Anyways, for Death by Video 100. I've been Phil. I've been Kit. I've been Graham saying, keep watching amazing movies. Good night. A lot of people don't realize what's really going on. They view life as a bunch of unconnected incidents and things. They don't realize that there's this, like, lattice of coincidence that lays on top of everything. I'll give you an example. I'll show you what I mean. Suppose you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say, like, plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp, out of the blue, no explanation. No point in looking for one either. It's all part of a cosmic unconsciousness. You eat a lot of acid, Miller, back in the hippie days? Eres un hombre que...